Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark's Gospel, uh, the Gospel according to Mark, and reading in chapter 11. We have been working our way through Mark, and uh, we have come to this 11th chapter, uh, which um, uh, gives a great deal of attention, not only to the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, uh, but to um, when Jesus cursed the fig tree. And uh, we want to uh, look at verses 20 through 26 this morning, but we want to begin our reading back at verse 12. Mark chapter 11 at verse 12, and you'll find this on page 847 if you're looking in the church Bibles. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And then in the footnote, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, who is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Sometimes a particular lesson uh, can leave a lasting impression upon us. Uh, you may be able to look back, for those of us who are older, in our adult years, we may be able to look back at a childhood memory uh, when something happened uh, and that lesson still is vivid in our memories. Maybe we were uh, doing something foolish and an adult had to reprimand us, had to correct us. But even now, we can still remember uh, being called out uh, for something and learning a very important lesson. Sometimes the memories that we have are because of an incident that was so peculiar. But sometimes it's because the consequences were severe as well. Uh, maybe uh, the ramifications of what we did left that impression on us. 
As we're turning back to Mark's gospel this morning, we are looking at a, a time, an event in the lives of the disciples that left a lasting impression upon them. This is something that shaped the way that they thought uh, and the way that they uh, testified about the ministry of Jesus. And so it is worth our attention to think how the disciples were shaped by this incident of Jesus cursing uh, the fig tree. You remember that when Jesus came to Bethany, uh, he was hungry and he found that fig tree that was in leaf. But when he came over to the fig tree, although there were leaves on the outside, there were no figs for him to eat. And then Jesus did something peculiar. Jesus spoke words of judgment against that fig tree. He spoke words of destructiveness against that fig tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that was something that the disciples heard. Uh, they heard Jesus speaking to the fig tree. Uh, but it was not only the peculiarity of Jesus speaking to a fig tree that they remembered that left a lasting impression on them, but it was the consequences, the effect of Jesus' words that also made it something that was memorable in their own lives. Uh, his words had an arresting effect on them. Uh, as they passed by in the morning, it tells us there in verse 20, they saw the fig tree had withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. There's a couple of things that stand out about that. The first is, is that it tells us that Peter remembered these things. Um, that Peter remembered it tells us that it left an impression on him. And it also is drawing attention uh, to the fact that this is something that is coming from Peter. Why, why is it that, or uh, how is it that Mark even knows these things? That it was something that Peter remembered unless Peter himself told Mark uh, this. And it's one of these incidental details that gives us information, that gives us an idea of how it is that the Gospels were written and how it is that they were pulled together. That Peter himself is a source of Mark's writing. And Mark can say these things because Peter himself told him. This isn't the only time in Mark's gospel that Peter remembered something that Jesus said. Uh, but it tells us that what Peter remembered was something that left a lasting impression on him. So why is it that Peter was uh, so impressed by what happened here? Well, it was that the fig tree had been cursed by Jesus but then had quickly withered. That, that the change was not something that was natural, but rather that was something that was orchestrated by the interventing power of God. There, uh, uh, it says in verse 20, that it withered away to its roots. Uh, in such a short time, the fig tree had completely come to an end. Uh, this wasn't uh, the effect of coincidence, but was on account of Jesus's word. The same words about uh, withering away to its root, uh, it's the same language that Jesus used in one of his parables. You remember the parable of the sower, when Jesus talked about a sower who sowed seed and it went out to different kinds of soil. And there was the, the rocky ground, which initially the seed sprouted up, 
but it says because it had no uh, it had no root, it withered away. Although there was the initial appearance of life, it was not actually rooted, and so it ultimately died off. And now that reality that Jesus was trying to describe in that parable is actually being realized here against this fig tree. It, it withered away and died. But the fig tree represented, you remember, not just a fig tree, but it was a representative of the nation itself. That in the Old Covenant scriptures, the prophets spoke of Israel, the people of God, and compared them like a fig tree that is expected to bear fruit or to bear figs. And so here we see this symbolic act of Jesus bringing judgment against a fig tree because there is no fruit. The outward appearance does not match an inward reality. There is no unity with the source of life. And as a result, it is dried up and becomes barren itself. And so Peter remembered these words because there was such a sudden change. Something peculiar happened. Jesus is talking to a fig tree. But after Jesus spoke to that fig tree, it died. And so he remembered those words. But in time, Peter and the disciples will remember these words, not just because that was different, but because of the significance of what was being communicated. That where there is no life, there will be no fruit. That where there is no fruit, there will be judgment. And so here we see uh, Peter's uh, reaction of surprise uh, by what uh, has happened and the withering away of the fig tree. Oh, uh, and so uh, through this, uh, we not only are given a symbolic act of the judgment that is coming against the temple worship, but also we see immediately here in this moment, Jesus makes it a lesson to them about faith. Uh, Jesus responds to them after Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus responds in verse 22 by saying, have faith in God. Jesus could be saying that because of what he sees in contrast in the temple worship. That whereas what was happening in the temple with the money changers, with the, uh, the animals in the, uh, in the court of the Gentiles, all of this in violation of God's will and design. That Jesus is seeing faithlessness evident in the temple worship. And so he may be saying this because in contrast to what is around them, they need to have faith. But we could also understand these words where Jesus says, have faith in God in light of Peter's surprise. That Peter's reaction, as is so often true in the disciples, they're stunned by the works and the sayings that Jesus does and, and the results that come from them. And Jesus here is impressing upon his disciples the importance of faith. Uh, to not live by sight, but to live trusting in the power of God. And so this morning we want to think about uh, that statement of Jesus, have faith in God. And we want to see that we are to have faith in God in the way that we live our lives and what that means. We want to think about it in two thoughts. We want to think about having faith in the power of God and having faith in the mercy 
of God as well. What does it mean uh, when we say faith? Um, We can use vocabulary, we can use words so often that when we slow down and think, what do we mean when we say that? It can sometimes be harder to describe things to us. People can use the word faith in different ways. Sometimes people talk about faith as simply a blind leap, uh, just wishful thinking, just being optimistic, just being positive. What does it mean when Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in God? Well, at the very least, it's telling us something about God, that we're, we're thinking something about God and we're relating to God in a certain way. But faith itself, faith is a persuasion about a certain matter that causes us to act on that basis. As simple as that. And at that level, everyone has faith. We all have a certain persuasion about reality. And we are persuaded to such an extent that we are going to make actions, choices on matters on the basis of what we're persuaded of. That we have a confidence about something that moves us in a certain direction. But when the Bible says to have faith in God, it is talking about a persuasion about God, a persuasion about ourselves, that we understand that we are sinful, a persuasion about God, that he is merciful, and that he is a God who saves, as the psalmist was saying, my savior and my hope is he. So to have saving faith is to believe that God forgives sinners. And that in Christ, I can be delivered from the guilt of my sins. That's saving faith. It is trusting in the work of God for one's own deliverance. But we can speak about faith in different ways. There is the faith that justifies a person. But we can also talk about the the operating of faith, the outworking of faith, the acting of faith. And that is what Jesus is getting at here when he says, have faith in God. He is, he's talking about the, the operation of faith, where a person has confidence in God. Confidence in his being. Confidence in his power and his wisdom and his goodness. A principle that is shaping the way that they live their life. And so when Jesus is telling them to have faith in God, he is, he is talking about the dynamic that is operating in them. And in that sense, a person's faith can be strong or weak. Their faith can be something that is built up or it can be something that is, uh, is beaten down. But our faith is something that is to be rooted in our understanding of God And something that is to drive us forward in the way that we live our lives. And so Jesus is impressing upon us the importance of faith in the way that we live our lives. Not simply in acknowledging the problem of sin, but in the way that we approach all of life. A confidence about God that shapes the way that we live. So here Jesus is speaking in that broad sense of uh, general confidence in God. 
And then Jesus begins to unpack that for them. He says, have faith in God. And then in verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes uh, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't simply say whoever says to any mountain, but he says to this mountain. And you can almost see him pointing uh, to a, a particular mountain when he's saying those words. That he's either talking about uh, the Mount of Olives or he's talking about Mount Moriah where the temple is situated. But he's speaking about a mount and he's giving the disciples some concrete image before them. And he's saying, whoever says to this mountain to be uh, lifted up and cast into the sea, to be cast into the Dead Sea or wherever, whoever is saying this, if they say it with faith, it will be done for them. And so for these disciples looking at that, if he's talking about the Mount of Olives being picked up and thrown into the sea, he's talking about uh, being plummeted 4,000 feet, he's talking about something uh, quite impressive. But Jesus isn't actually talking about literal mountains. He's using a figure of speech, isn't he? That's what we saw there even in Zechariah. That a mountain stands for that which seems insurmountable. Something that seems impossible. Uh, this, this cannot be traversed. This cannot be surpassed. This is a barrier that prevents us from going any further. This mountain stands between us and what we were hoping for. But in scripture, it would highlight that God is a God who can move mountains. And that's what it said in Zechariah 4. But who are you, O mountain, before my servant Zerubbabel? Behold, you will become a plain. The impossible will be removed. The barrier will be addressed. Because God's sovereign purposes will be realized. That was the promise that was being given through the prophet Zechariah. What seems impossible will be done by God. And so Jesus here is making that point to them. That, uh, that they are to have faith in God. That he is able to do all that he has declared. All that he has purposed to do. Why is Jesus saying this? Because we tend to live by sight. We tend to look at the world around us and we begin to see how things are. And then we begin to project what we think is reasonable to conclude. And it's very easy to live our lives excluding God from the equation. Just thinking about it from our own abilities or thinking about it from our own intuition. What do we expect can happen? What do we think we can accomplish? And God is removed from that picture. But Jesus here is saying that his people are to live with a, a conscious understanding that God is at work and that his purposes will prevail in spite of the barriers that exist. And so he is, he's impressing this upon them. We're not to live simply by sight in the way things are, but in an understanding of the unfolding works of God. Peter saw a fig tree. The fig tree seemed healthy. It looked like it had many years to it. 
Judging by appearances, he would have expected it to be there next year and the following year. And yet, by the word of Jesus, the fig tree died because God intervened in that situation. Because of the power of God's purposes being realized. And so when Peter's stunned by this change, this is not what I expected, such an abrupt change, Jesus is saying, it shouldn't really surprise you that God can change things because God is active in this world. We shouldn't live as though everything is a closed mechanism in this world. God is at work in this world and we should acknowledge his power in all of life. So Jesus' pronouncement brought a sudden change, but that sudden change was uh, through God's powerful intervention. Jesus goes on to say, if we do not doubt but believe what is said, it will be done for us. Uh, we need to be careful uh, with Jesus' words here uh, because there are whole movements that have taken words like this and lifted them out of Scripture and have applied them in an absolute context or an absolute way that all you have to do is ask, and it, if, as long as you don't doubt, it'll be given to you. And these groups, some of them uh, are, can be summarized as name it and claim it, or prosperity gospel uh, churches. They have this idea that as long as a person desires something and expects God to do it, then it'll be realized. And if it's not realized, then it's because you didn't believe enough. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Even when we think about the mountain that Jesus is talking about, the mountain that Jesus says will be lifted up and cast into the sea, the context itself is telling us that what Jesus is talking about is that which stands as a barrier to the sovereign purposes of God. That God will remove that which is standing in the way of God's will. And so when Jesus says, uh, if we ask, it will be given to us, it's not an absolute guarantee that we will get anything we ask, but rather it is a, a, a stressing that God's sovereign purposes will be realized. Whatever God has purposed to do will be done. The only way a person can ask for something and not doubt in their heart is when they know they're asking according to God's will. We ask for anything we want. Uh, eventually, we're going to start doubting, is this what God wants? Uh, but when we are asking what God has revealed as his will, then we can be certain that this uh, is uh, God's will and we don't need to doubt. So Jesus here is telling his disciples, have faith in God. Have faith in God's ability to be at work to change, to, to overcome barriers. And why is it that they should have that confidence? Well, they just saw it. Peter just saw the power of God at work in the change that happened to this fig tree. It was a change that brought judgment or brought curse or brought death on this fig tree. But the reason we can have confidence in the power of God is ultimately because of what God has done in Christ with respect to salvation. 
that in Isaiah it talks about how God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. But it says, but your sins have made a wall of separation between you and your God. Your sins have made a mountain that stands as a barrier between you and fellowship with the living God. But at the end of that chapter, it says that God himself saw that there was no one else to intercede. And so by his own arm, God brought salvation. God would do it by his own strength. He would intercede and remove the barrier of our sins. And as Isaiah goes on to celebrate, that mountain of sins would be carried by the servant of the Lord. He would bear our sins. And so the, the insurmountable uh, heap of sins that separate us are taken up and then cast upon the Son, that he bears them so that there is no longer that wall of separation. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus, the problem has been addressed. A great change has taken place. And now we can be reconciled with God and enjoy his favor. And so when Jesus is saying, have faith in God, we're having faith in God because we know his power. He is able to move mountains. He's able to bring change because he's sovereign. And his purposes will come to pass. And God's purposes have been always centered around redeeming sinners. In rescuing them from their state of sin. And so uh, it is this uh, that becomes the foundation for why we can have faith. When we contemplate the power of God to save sinners, it should cause us then to be confident in all of his purposes and when we pray for God's will to be done, then uh, we can be certain, uh, confident that it will be. This is part of the reason why it's good when we pray uh, to pray God's word back to him. Not just because we're trying to um, uh, memorize or store up God's word by itself. But when we are praying God's word back to him, we are keeping ourselves. We're ensuring that we are praying according to God's will. We're asking what is pleasing in God's sight. And then we can be certain it will be realized. So Jesus says, have faith in God. And we can see having faith in God means living in light of or applying that truth that God is sovereign and that his will will be done. And he is able to deliver us and even to remove mountains uh, by his strength. But then secondly, having faith in God also entails uh, recognizing God's mercy. He goes on in verse 24. He says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Faith in God leads to prayer. It leads you to asking God to move mountains, to remove obstacles from his sovereign purpose. But faith in God is not only marked by confidence in God to change things, it's also marked by an awareness that God changes us. It causes people to become merciful towards one another. 
because we recognize our problem is not just that we are weak, that we can't lift mountains, but that our problem is, is that we are sinful and we have sinned against one another. And that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But if we believe in the power of God to save, if God's arm has brought salvation, has removed the mountain of sin from us in Jesus Christ, if we have known of God's mercy ourselves, and that we can now address God as our Father, that we can be confident of his mercy, it ought to shape the way that we relate to others. A Christian should be marked by one thing, mercy. They should be marked by an understanding that they have been forgiven much and therefore they will forgive others. That's the repeated refrain of the New Testament. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. What does it say if we profess to be Christians, but then we do not extend forgiveness to others? Does it not call into question whether we actually know the mercy of God ourselves? That's why Jesus connects the two there and says, if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly father forgive your trespasses. If we have truly known of God's forgiveness, then we will extend it. That's what he teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. We realize that we have sinned. We are sinners by nature. We continue to sin. We stand in need of God's forgiveness. And so recognizing who we are causes us to want to show forgiveness to others as well. Just as Jesus' earlier statement, ask and it will be given to you, needs to be qualified. It's not an absolute statement that whatever you want, you'll get. It's according to God's sovereign purposes. At the same time, so does this statement about forgiving others as well. Jesus uh, needs to be qualified uh, by what he says elsewhere. Um, scripture teaches us uh, that um, uh, forgiveness does not negate the need to confront sin. It does not negate the issue of church discipline. It does not negate the issue of seeking restitution. Forgiveness does not mean that all these other things don't matter. But what Jesus is saying is, is that when you look at your life, is there an orientation that says forgiveness is important? Am I a forgiving person? What is it that would make me want to forgive someone? Or do I want to be resentful? Do I want to live with that grudge What's shaping my story? So when we think about having faith in God and applying our understanding of God's grace to the way that we live one, another's, uh, one another, we ought to be people who desire to extend forgiveness where we can. Forgiveness is something where a person acknowledges their wrongdoing and reconciliation happens where there is repentance. And so there's not always true reconciliation that will be realized. But the question is, is, do I aim for it? Do I want it? Or do I want separation? Do I want that division? 
Do we ask uh, God to make us more merciful towards others so that we are willing to forgive? This is part of having faith in God. When we think about moving mountains, we might think about changing the world, the situation that we're in. But what if moving mountains is also in terms of renewing us? That we are no longer harboring resentment, but that by God's spirit, something's being removed so that we're able to deal with others on the basis of the love of Christ. That's having faith in God. That's applying what I know about God to the way I live my life. And that's honoring Christ. So when Jesus turns to his disciples and they're shocked about this fig tree that has been destroyed, Jesus says, have faith in God. Why? Because we're not just living by sight, but we're recognizing the power of God to intervene into situations. Here, God intervenes to bring judgment. But God ultimately intervenes to bring redemption too, to bring salvation. He does that through his son. And when we realize that God changes things, we also are being changed too. It's all part of having faith. What are we confident in? We should be confident in our God, that he's at work, but also confident in his mercy and living on the basis of what he's done in Christ to his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over your word, uh, that we would uh, be shaped uh, by your words and actions. Lord, uh, we are told that Peter remembered uh, the words that Jesus spoke, that these things left a lasting impression upon him. And we pray that we would see a lesson even for ourselves today, to know that we are to have faith in God, and that we are to be people who live knowing that our God is active, but also that we are to be people uh, uh, living in light of your grace. So go before us, we pray, and help us uh, to be people marked by mercy and living to your glory. In Jesus' name.